Good morning. So there's three kids playing outside the pastor's office. And as they're playing, they just happen to find a toonie on the ground. Ooh, toonie. You don't pick up nickels and dimes much anymore, but a toonie, three kids will fight over a toonie. So they try and figure out who gets to keep the toonie, and they finally say to themselves, let's have a lying contest. Whoever can tell the biggest lie gets to keep the toonie. Oh, the pastor. He is not pleased with that idea. He leans his head out the window and says, You boys, don't you know that lying's a sin? It's one of the Ten Commandments. I've never lied in my entire life. The three boys look at each other, look at the pastor and say, All right, you in the toonie. Okay. Let's read from Philippians, looking at chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and moving through to verse 11. I'll just footnote this by saying this has always been one of my favorite passages of Scripture. You are allowed to have favorites. As long as you respect the whole book, you're allowed to have favorites too. All right. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father God, teach us from your word, we pray. Amen. So we know that Paul is writing from prison, his first Roman imprisonment. I think in the past couple sermons, I, I might have exaggerated a bit on how difficult a situation it was for him because he wasn't necessarily in a dark and dreary cell. It's more like he was under house arrest. He wasn't allowed to leave Rome. He was, he was kept in one place until his trial was coming. But he was still a prisoner. And he needed the company around him, people like Timothy and others, to support him. He couldn't go out and make a living, that sort of thing. 
So he's in house arrest with company as opposed to an inmate on death row. He hasn't had his trial yet. Timothy and others are taking care of him, and while this is all happening, the gospel work's expanding. It's, it, it's, it's going ahead. Remember back in chapter 1, he says, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So this letter as a whole is a thank you letter for support. Much like a modern day missionary would send a letter to their supporters. But Paul is also taking the opportunity to address other concerns as well. He spent the first chapter thanking the Philippians for their love and support and encouraging them to remain faithful even through the hard times. He's now turning his attention to the health of the church. We started to talk about unity in the church in the last bit of chapter 1. Now he starts to expand upon that theme. The first two verses are a call to unity. And you remember all those if statements. Let me read them to you again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Well, those ifs aren't questions. They're confirmations. Like telling a child, if you want dessert, you better finish your supper. Well, you know the kid wants dessert. There's no question about it. But you want him to accomplish something before he gets his dessert. He's confirming that this list of qualities that he's just written out to them exist within this church. Encouragement from being united with Christ. Comfort from His love. Fellowship with the Spirit. Tenderness and compassion. Let's look at these qualities. Encouragement from being united with Christ can be understood two different ways, on two different levels. One is their unity of faith with Paul and the rest of the Christian community. They have the encouragement of knowing they're not alone. They're not the only church out there in this vast Roman Empire. There's others. Paul is with them in spirit as are many other Christians throughout the empire. The other level is knowing that they are united with Christ in His suffering. He suffered to bring them salvation. And now they are suffering because of their belief in Christ. In this way they are united with their Savior in suffering. He's a Savior that can understand and relate to their pain because He's been through so much Himself. Now that might not sound like a lot of encouragement, but just wait. I've been through painful times, as most of us have. And there's something about having someone to talk to who has felt pain as well. It is encouraging. It gives perspective to your own pain. Pain can alienate someone. It can really alienate them. Knowing you're not alone helps draw you back into reality and face the pain. We then have comfort from His love. This can refer to the peace that they receive from God through being a part of His growing community of believers. 
But since the past paragraph spoke of suffering, it makes sense that these words continue that thought. They have the comfort from being Christians, to be sure, but they also have comfort from Christ's act of love on the cross, suffering for their sins so that they wouldn't have to. Fellowship with the Spirit, their Christian faith, our Christian faith, brings them, brings us into fellowship with the Holy Spirit, God's helper for their children, His children, pardon me. He is always with them in times of need and times of plenty. Paul can't be with them. He's imprisoned for his faith. But the Holy Spirit will never leave them. He is and always will be Jesus' deposit of the complete salvation that is to come. And then he wraps up these phrases with tenderness and compassion. They have tenderness and compassion. Now, in the light of the other qualities, what does this mean? Is he saying that they have been treated with tenderness and compassion, or that they are a tender and compassionate group? Well, they've demonstrated they're a compassionate church through their treatment of Paul. Later on, he'll mention how they alone, of all the churches out there, have been supporting his needs while he's in prison. Yet, they've also been treated with tenderness and compassion in simply being introduced to Christ and allowed to build a church together. Since both of these are possible and neither takes away from the text, go with both. Go with both. They, are ten they, they, they were treated with tenderness and compassion and they are a church that shows tenderness and compassion. But all of this is a lead up. All of this is a lead up to verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He's spoken to them about his love for them already. But now he wants them to address a problem area that's sticking out like a sore thumb. He says it three different ways just to make sure they really get the point. And he says it in the tone of a command to show how very important this point is. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and purpose. Now since we as people tend not to react well to commands, we need to look very closely at what this one really says. It is not a demand to be clones of each other. There's a reason some of us preach, some of us knit, some of us sing, some of us read, some of us fiddle with knobs on computers and other things. And we don't all have the same giftings, the same talents. We're not to be clones of each other. It's not meant to stifle the creativity and richness that comes with diversity of race or economic status, occupation, age, or gender. It is a call to serve the gospel together as one people, without the petty squabbling that was festering among them. We know the issues they were fighting over were petty, 
because they themselves are never brought up. When the Galatian church starts to go off base with their theology, Paul nails them. He brings up the issue and nails them for it. But the Philippians' troubles, whatever they were, we'll never know. They were so petty, so inconsequential in their own way, that he doesn't bring them up, he just calls them to task for it. And insists, hey, come together. Come together. The power of dissent doesn't need the support of a credible cause to do its work. I'll always remember the true story of a Baptist church in the suburbs of Chicago, pardon me, Boston, where a brawl broke out in the middle of the Sunday morning service. The congregation had broken off into two factions, one to keep the pastor and one to toss him out. These groups provoked by a heated exchange between the pastor and the deacon leading the charge to oust him, actually began a full-scale riot within their sanctuary. The police had to come and settle everything down. Ironically, the judge that tried the main combatants was a Jewish man. And before he dismissed the charges, he said to the group, your Jesus Christ may allow this sort of thing in his followers, but the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will not permit fistfights as a regular order of church service. Are these fair words? No, they're not. But it's the kind of black eye the church gets when it allows disunity to fester and go unchallenged. Paul knows dissent is a killer and commands the Philippians to unite in their faith. But now having called them to unity, he tells them how to achieve it together. The command, now the instruction. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Selfish ambition, that drive to have everything in one's life center around oneself. It's like having the mindset of a two-year-old in a grown-up brain and body. You work for yourself, you rest for yourself, you act on your own interests. You're basically the center of your own universe. For a child, this is a stage in development. For an adult, it's the triumph of self-centeredness over the development of a mature and healthy person. Vain conceit. Vain conceit is akin to the fool who takes pride in his foolishness. Conceit's bad enough when it comes from a source which, under normal circumstances, may be entitled to some respect. I used to make the joke, I'm not conceited. Conceit's a fault, and I'm faultless. But vain conceit is hollow. It's hollow, empty boasting. It it's the bully who glories in his brutality, or the joker who only gets laughs from himself. Ultimately, it's pride that's rooted in nothing of substance or significance. Both of these attitudes are killers for unity, because they stop us from acting in a way that brings people together. Do you want to be around people like that? 
the selfishly ambitious people, the vainly conceited people. They isolate people from the whole. They distract us from seeing the needs of others. What we need to do in order to work together is pay attention to each other. And that's exactly what Paul calls us to do in the rest of this paragraph. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is calling us to regard others as more important than ourselves. That's not easy to hear, but the words are right in front of us. Let's not play around with them. Let's not mess around with them. But let's read them carefully. And not get consumed by one or two that we miss the whole point. First, the Apostle Paul would never, would never see one group as more important than the other. It is he who has also written that there is no Jew or Greek or man or woman or slave or free. All are one in Christ. So this isn't a call to devalue ourselves or regard ourselves as contemptible in any way. Nor is Paul advocating not taking care of your own needs. He's obviously taking care of his own. He's accepting gifts from the Philippians to do so. But what he is saying is that to work together, we need to put the needs of others ahead of our own. He's saying that the church is to be a place where we put aside petty differences and strive for a common goal. We do this by working together, giving up when we can, taking when we need to. Yes, we are allowed to take. And looking out for the best we can give for others and not the best that can be done for ourselves. We bring ourselves to the church the way God made us, but we make each other the target of our efforts, all for the sake of the gospel and its source, Jesus Christ. We practice forgiveness. The people of Jesus who taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, should be known for their willingness, their eagerness to forgive. And we do it with humility, the quality that simply allows us to concentrate on what is best for others. Not false modesty that comes out of a hidden pride. Or an acquiescence that grovels to everything that confronts it. Humility is a way of life that truly seeks the best for others. Is willing to put oneself in the background to accomplish it. Now Paul knew this would be hard to accept especially in a society that elevated personal achievement. So he points to the one example that no believer can argue against. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He's given us the command, be united. He's given us the description through the practice of humility. And now he gives us the example. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Your attitude should be the same as that 
of Christ Jesus. I want a t-shirt that says that. Maybe not a t-shirt. Maybe just a big sign or something. Just something that says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what was his attitude? Well, that's the rest of the passage. Being in every way God... Jesus did not consider this something that he had to cling to for dear life. He had it all. There are people who clutch everything that comes their way. They rely on their status or their occupation or their possessions or their achievements to define who they are. And letting go of anything causes them to feel less of a person, to feel like less of a person. Jesus, who had everything was willing to let it all go. He poured out himself. He reduced himself to a servant in human likeness. Likeness means the same as, not an imitation or a copy. He didn't show up as a fake person or a phantom or anything else. He showed up as a person, a human man. And this transition is simply incomparable. We could try to get a handle on it by imagining Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world, giving up everything and living in a monastery. We could imagine a human being voluntarily reducing himself to the form of a wee bitty ant or even a microbe. That gives us the concept of what Christ did, but not the magnitude, not the scale. That has no comparison. It's unmatchable. His next step was to reduce himself even more. We see from the life he led that he could have been any kind of man he wanted to be. He healed people. He taught people. He performed miracles. He could have marched away with anything he wanted. The people thought he was there to take the kingdom over. That's why they lined up on the road to Jerusalem to welcome him as a king. That's the palm branches and the jackets going down on the ground. They thought they were bringing in their warrior king that would drive out the Romans and establish a new rule. But taking over wasn't his intent. He came to earth to restore mankind's peace with God. And he did this by giving his life on the cross. Crucifixion was the death reserved for non-people. Even evil criminals that had Roman citizenship were spared this humiliation, but not Jesus. All of this to achieve one thing, our freedom from sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Romans 5.8 while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What incredible love. What incredible humility. And what incredible obedience. And how did God react to all this? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's so much to look at in these three verses, but for the sake of time, I'm going to limit myself to sharing the bottom line. God restored Jesus to his rightful place, gave him supremacy over all things, and replaced all of creation everywhere, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, back under his rule. In other words, he was vindicated for his humility. He served to free mankind from sin, and God moved to restore Christ to his fullness. The implication is that we too will be vindicated for our obedience if we act in humility. Putting ourselves before others is a difficult thing, but if and when we do, God will not let our humility go unrewarded. We won't be elevated to Godhood as Christ was. That's not the idea of salvation. But we will be made whole, as we should have been all along, as Christ designed us back in the beginning. So what is our reaction to these words? How should we react to Paul's command to the Philippians. We should see what we have in Christ. Just as Paul recounted all those positive qualities of the Philippians, so too should we as a community of God's children see and appreciate what we have. Look what we have in our church today. Dedicated service, generosity of spirit, strong fellowship, and be thankful Truly thankful that God has brought together here who he's brought together here and what he's been able to do through us. But being thankful and being thankful for what God is doing, we must be vigilant. Vigilant. Did I say vigilant? <laughs> we must be vigilant that we do not allow dissent to fester among us. We should strive to be of like mind and spirit, not duplicates. You don't want 50 Pastor Jims running around here. Trust me. Not, not clones or imitations. God doesn't want copycat Christians pretending to be like their favorite pastor or, or, or Christian leader. But he does want us to keep our eyes focused on what is truly important instead of our own prides and prejudices. We're servants of the King of Kings and not self-seeking consumer Christians. We learn and grow as Christians by serving each other, not ourselves. And we do this through the practice of humility, which Christ so powerfully demonstrated for us in His selfless coming to earth and sacrifice for us. Humility is not groveling. It's not weak. It is selflessness in a selfish world. It's seeing the world as a place where people need help and acting on that need by helping people. It's choosing to take what we have and deliberately helping someone else benefit from it. It's giving when we're tempted to take, but it's also taking when we need 
when someone gives. It's giving up our place in line to someone who needs it more. And we can do this with hope that's rooted in faith and confidence that God will see our efforts and they will not be in vain. Living in humility doesn't gather a lot of applause. It may even be scorned, but God doesn't miss it. He sees, He knows, He remembers. Jesus rose victorious after His life of humility. And so shall we when we strive to serve Him and imitate Him. And finally, as a church, if we're ready to allow serving Jesus to be our unifying vision, and then serving Him by serving each other in love and humility, what do you think will happen? What do you think would happen? If you're not sure, well, neither am I. But I'm ready to find out. Let's work on it and find out together. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for the love this church holds for each other and holds for you. I thank you for the generosity of spirit. I thank you for the fellowship. I thank you for the care to the community. Father God, help us to be vigilant that disunity doesn't start to crop up amongst us. I don't think it's here. I truly don't. But it could. It happened to the Philippines. It could happen to us. So help us to be vigilant. Help us to do what is right so we don't have to worry about wrong coming in. Help us to be humble, to live in humility, so that our needs won't always be in front of others, so that other, others' needs will take priority, Lord, that we'll see what is needed out there and act upon it as individuals who love you and serve you, as a community of believers, as a family of believers who love and serve you. Help us to imitate your son, not imitate our favorite pastors or leaders or others, but to imitate your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.